Good morning. Before we get started in the message, just want to throw out a little friendly reminder. It's, it's, when it comes to this weekend, it's not just for the grilling, it's for remembering. And, and I think sometimes, you know, our lives can be so busy that when we get a weekend that comes around where we got a three-day weekend, it's a great opportunity to get a few home projects taken care of um, and to get preoccupied with that. It also serves as a good opportunity maybe to get some of the family together and grill out and uh, uh, have the grandkids over or go uh, go to the grandparents' house and and spend a little time together, and, and all of that's great, you know, and, and I hope that, you know, everyone in here has an opportunity for some of that. But let's remember Memorial Day weekend. It's a time that has been intentionally set aside so that we're not as apt, we don't fall into that tendency quite as quick of taking for granted what it is that we enjoy in this country, the freedom that we have. There was a price that was paid to secure the freedom that we have. And there's an ongoing price that gets paid in protecting the freedom that we have. To be able to do what we're doing right now, to be able to gather together and to worship and not have to do it, you know, in a, a quiet, hidden sort of a way, but to be able to do it publicly. There were people that that paid the highest price. People that in service that, that gave their lives for us to be able to enjoy some of what we have today. And so I would encourage you as I speak, I'm speaking to myself to reflect and remember the price that's been paid many times over by many individuals, not just during our lifetime, but before we were born for us to be able to enjoy what it is that we have in our lives. The shedding of blood, the giving of their life, and the families, because it's not just an individual's thing. The whole family gets impacted when someone dies for the fight of freedom. And, and let's remember that. In fact, let's, let's go ahead and just have a prayer about that right now, okay? Father, we are so grateful for something that a number of us in this room probably should confess as sin that we take for granted what it is that we're blessed with. And we just, sometimes we just kind of live our lives and, and don't ever think about it, and don't ever think about um, the prices that have been paid down through the years for us to be able to Enjoy the freedom to do the very thing that we're doing right now in this place. Father, I pray that you would help, help keep that in a conscious level in our minds um, so we're less likely to take for granted just some of the blessings that we live our lives with that uh, people have done what was necessary to secure and to protect down through the years. And we just pray for the families that even right now are still dealing with uh, uh, some, of the, some of the consequences of having lost family members in battles and, or having uh, family members that have become disabled because of injury and all in, in conflicts in order for us to be able to, to have what we have. So, Father, we're, 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 we're praying for them. We just pray that your hand be upon them, strengthen those families, and, and we just pray that your spirit will do a good work in our hearts in helping us to live our lives in such a way that we are indeed a grateful people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So today we're going to be talking about a subject that is a big subject. And it's actually a subject that sooner or later all of us find ourselves struggling with to some degree or another. You know, nearly 
86 percent of the world's population is religious. That, that's over eight, almost nine out of every ten people in the world. That's not kind of the way, that's not the way we normally hear it because you know, sometimes if you listen to the evening news and stuff like that, you kind of get the impression that, that there are just as many atheists out there as there are people of, of faith, of belief. But the studies show that 86% of the world's population are religious and just 14% do not have any kind of a religious affiliation. Now, the major religions that make that up, and we'll touch on some of these in more detail here in a moment, but, but the major ones would be Christianity. The umbrella of Christianity, you know, covers 30% of the population of the world. Islam, there's 24% of the population of the world that falls under that umbrella. Hinduism, 14%. Buddhism, 6%, but those are only the top four in numbers as far as religions go. There are many, many more. There's Taoism, Judaism, Mormonism, Confucianism, Sikhism, and the list goes on and on. It's more than just dozens. It's more than hundreds. There are actually thousands of religions that cover the face of the planet. Now, some people argue that it really doesn't matter which one you're a part of, which one that you fall in with and hold beliefs based on, uh, because, and they say it's because they're all fundamentally the same. That's the argument that sometimes we hear. It doesn't matter which one you believe, uh, as long as you're sincere, because they're all fundamentally the same. They're all headed to the same place. We're just taking different routes to get there. And some of the routes, you know, are maybe a little more windy and there's a few more roundabouts and stuff like that. But they all eventually end up in the same place. And that's, that's kind of some of the thinking that you hear. As a matter of fact, you know, I started paying attention to this kind of stuff in the late 70s, all right, when I was a teenager. So I didn't pay attention to any of this in the early years of my life, but... But, uh, you know, in, in my late teens, as I was paying attention to some of this kind of stuff, I remember there being a guy that was quoted on a number of different occasions, and you've probably heard his name, and some of you, you know, um, overlapped with his life as well, and that is a guy by the name of Gandhi. And this is one of the statements that he is quoted with having said, the soul of religion is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. Now, back in the day when he was saying stuff like that, teaching that sort of thing, it wasn't necessarily quickly embraced by huge numbers and percentages of people because people kind of thought, oh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I agree with that. But, you know, enough decades have passed that that is kind of the, the kind of mindset and belief that many people rush to now. And they do embrace, far more so than back when Gandhi first said that. One of the main reasons that this kind of thinking has gotten, gotten more of a footing in recent decades is because we live in a day of religious pluralism and, and tolerance. The highest value that a person, the most significant value that we can have is that of tolerance. Or at least that's the way it seems to, to be promoted. It's, it hasn't been politically correct for a long time for one religion or one faith system to teach that other faiths are not legitimate. That's not been politically correct for a long time. As a matter of fact, a couple of the major Protestant denominations have declared over uh, recent decades that there are alternative ways to get to God, to go to heaven, than Jesus. And I'm talking about Christian denominations. You know, there's a couple of uh, the mainline ones that have gone on record in making that kind of a statement. There are other ways. It's not just Jesus. And part of the thinking is that this is what being loving is all about. This is what being loving looks like, is that we need to be tolerant. We need to be accepting 
of other people's views. We need to even embrace their viewpoints and give them um, equal uh, credibility and validity to whatever the convictions and beliefs are that we hold. Now, for the record, I do believe we need to be respectful of the rights of other people to hold the religious views that they have. I do believe that that is a principle that is taught in Scripture. Peter talked about that very sort of a thing, I, I believe, in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I believe we need to be respectful of other people's views, even if we don't agree with it, even if it clashes with our own. That doesn't mean necessarily, though, that we give it equal credibility, but we respect their right to hold those views. But to promote the message that all religions are basically the same, I think that's dangerous. That's a dangerous step. As a matter of fact, I think that's cruel because eternity hangs in the balance. I mean, if anything that this book is saying, that's one of the things it communicates is that there is an eternity out there and it hangs in the balance. I mean, if this book is true, then we've got to listen to statements like what is said in Acts chapter 4. It says, no one else can save us. Indeed, we can be saved only by the power of the one named Jesus and not by any other person. I mean, we've got to do something with that statement, right? I mean, if, if, if this book is true, then... You know, for us to go around and to start patting other people on the back and saying, hey, you're doing fine, you're fine with what you believe right now, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you believe, because we're all going to eventually end up in the same place. I don't think that's the approach. I don't think that's loving to take that approach. Yeah, it may avoid making a few waves right now, but where's that headed? What's the end result that eventually will come to pass? See, I don't think that's loving. This is why there are so many passages in the Bible that warn us about false teachings and, and about false teachers. I mean, you actually see them in many places. Peter said this in his second letter, chapter 2, said there used to be false prophets among God's people, just as you will have false teachers in your group. They will secretly teach things that are wrong, teachings that will cause people to be lost. They will even refuse to accept the master, Jesus, who bought their freedom. So they will bring quick ruin on themselves. Many will follow their evil ways and say evil things about the way of truth. So Peter is saying that, that this is going to be happening. They're going to be flying below the radar, though. He's saying that, that they're not going to stand out there and blow a trumpet and say, okay, prepare yourself. Here comes some false teaching. It's not going to be announced like that, but it's going to happen in more of a secretive way, kind of a below-the-radar sort of way and then Peter goes on and says and there will be people that will fall for it and will believe it and that's a warning that he's given he wrote his letters to Christians who had been scattered because of persecution they were circulating letters and he was trying to get the word out among believers Paul said it like this in Galatians chapter 1 in fact this kind of ends up being the theme of of uh, this uh, short letter that he wrote. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So you see, Paul is... Is, and this, too, is a circulating letter. It was sent to the region of Galatia. There were a number of churches there, and apparently there was, there was some, some uh, influence from false teachers in these churches, causing these churches to kind of 
step away from the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and uh, starting to, to fall into a different line and religious belief. And, and he's saying, what are you guys doing? And he's sounding a warning with them. The apostle that lived the longest was John. He lived to the very tail end of the first century. And in his first letter, uh, 1 John chapter 4, he said this, Dearly loved friends, don't always believe everything you hear just because someone says it is a message from God. Test it first to see if it really is. For there are many false teachers around. And he goes on and breaks that down further. The reality is those are just three of the passages but there are 27 books in the New Testament, some of them very brief, others of them uh, quite a bit longer. But there are 27 of them, and 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament sound warnings regarding false teachers or false teachings or heresy that you need to be on your toes about, or all the above. 26 of the 27. The only one that doesn't is the little short book called Philemon. Otherwise, the rest of them give these kinds of warnings because it is a danger that we need to sit up and be aware of and keep our ears and our eyes open because of the danger. You see, God is not a God of confusion. That's one of the things that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, that God is not a God of confusion. And when you look at, at the landscape as far as all the religions that exist in, in the world, um, man, it's kind of a, it reminds me of fishing with my dad when I graduated beyond the cane fishing pole and I actually had a rod and reel that had a bunch of line on it. And inevitably, within 30 minutes, I would have a bird's nest of line, you know. And that's kind of what the religious scene in the world reminds me of. It just looks like, how can you make heads or tails out of all this? It is so confusing. Well, God is not a God of confusion. So, so what I want to do today, just to to kind of heighten your awareness of the differences that are out there. And I'm only going to skim the, the top, the surface of this in doing it, is I want to give you a glimpse into some world religions, all right? In particular, four of them. We're going to talk about Buddhism initially. Buddhism accounts for 6% of the world's population that fall into this belief system. It began in the 6th century B.C. And the guy that it started with, and I can pretty much guarantee you I'll butcher this, Siddhartha Gautama, okay? I might have pronounced one syllable correctly. The rest of it's wrong, so don't quote me on that. But anyway, that's the guy it started with. We don't know about him. Even if we've studied this, most of us wouldn't remember his name because the thing that we remember is what he later ended up being referred to as. And down through the centuries, this is how people have remembered him, the Buddha. This is the guy that eventually became known as the Buddha. The Buddha means literally the enlightened one. He was born a prince and had a lavish palace and had everything that went along with that, but he was troubled about the meaning of life. He, he just, he, he had it all. He had it all. He had it all available to him, but he wasn't happy. It kind of sounds like a book in the Old Testament, as I recall. Wasn't Solomon kind of in that frame of mind, you know, and what inspired him to write Ecclesiastes? I mean, he was the king of Israel, and, and at that time, Israel was in the zenith of its glory and power as a nation. And, and Solomon, you know, he just, he wasn't happy. He didn't feel content. And so he just kept trying this, kept trying that, a variety of things, and that's what he details out in the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, that's kind of what was happening with this guy. 
is he had it all available to him, but he wasn't happy. And so eventually what he ends up doing as a young man is he left his family and he searched after truth. And he tried the extremes. For example, one of the extremes was indulgence. He attempted to indulge himself in any way that he could think. And he had uh, many ways available at his disposal. But even though he indulged himself in all those types of ways, he soon discovered he wasn't any happier as a result. And so he swung the pendulum all the way to the other extreme, and he tried strict asceticism. He denied himself. Even some of the basic components of what you would think of as being a part of life, he denied himself a number of those as well in thinking that that's where he's going to find satisfaction in life, happiness in life, but he came up empty there as well. And then one day, as the story goes, he was sitting under a bow tree, and then that's when he discovered the problem of life, the problem was craving. It was his cravings. That's why he wasn't satisfied. If he could just put an end to his cravings, then he wouldn't have dissatisfaction to deal with anymore. And so any kind of desires, any kind of cravings, that's what he needed to to eliminate from his life. And so basically what we have is that Buddhism's central teaching is about how to arrive at that ideal state where there is no longer any kind of desire, no longer any kind of craving in your life. There's a word for that. It's called nirvana which means literally extinguished, blown out. So Buddhism teaches that life and the created world are illusions. This is part of what he came up with, is that everything you're experiencing in your life, as far as your home, as far as your job, as far as, you know, what your hobbies are, as far as what you see on TV, whatever it might be, that all of this is an illusion. And to enter into nirvana is to escape the illusion. So based on that, he developed the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. If you Google and look at at Buddhism, you'll, you'll read some about this Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. And uh, part of what he and um, Buddhists today believe is they believe in karma, they believe in reincarnation, but the ultimate goal is to be absorbed into the oneness of the universe. That's what you're working toward. That's Buddhism. Now let's talk a little bit about Hinduism. 14% of the world's population falls into this religion. Now, Buddhism has its roots in Hinduism. Okay, so there is a connection there. According to Hinduism, history is cyclical. We just keep repeating somewhat exactly what has taken place before. It's just kind of like it just plays over and over and over again. And it's in the form of reincarnations. We have all lived before many, many times. And it's just a cycle that continues. And we're reincarnated and we live again. History has no point and it's not headed toward any conclusion. Salvation for the Hindu is to be delivered from the cycle. Just to give you an idea of how wide the umbrella of Hinduism is, um, certain branches of Hinduism are atheistic. They don't believe in any gods, period. While at the same time, there are other branches of Hinduism that believe in thousands and thousands of gods. But they're all under one tent, one umbrella of Hinduism. Meditation is, is part of Hindu teaching, uh, meditation that falls in with yoga. It serves the purpose of bringing a person into union with an impersonal universe. You can think of it as being like a god, but it's a god with a small g. You're, you're coming into union with the impersonal universe. 
Part, part of the thinking that is a part of all of this, as far as these cycles, these reincarnation um, lives that you live, is that if you've lived a bad life, then you will end up moving downward in your reincarnation. So if your previous life to this life was bad, the way you lived, the choices you made, you lived it badly, um, then you're a step down from where you were in your last life. However, if you lived a good life in your last life, then you're a step up from where you once were. And so that not only includes what you're experiencing and, and what class or whatever you might, you know, to try to describe your life as being a part of, but, but that even includes animal life and stuff like that. That in a previous life, you may have been an animal at one time. But this is part of the, the beliefs that are, that are fundamentally woven into Hinduism. Suffering, and so this is, this is a key thought here, kind of where some of the rubber meets the road here. Um, suffering is repayment for the evil done in a former life. This is fundamental to Hinduism. That if you're going through some real adversity and struggle in your life, you're going through that because... Well, quite frankly, you deserve to go through that because of the last time around, the way that you lived your life. Therefore, what happens in your life is deserved. And so if you connect the dots on this, then that leads to the, the thought that humanitarian concern and compassion, they're not significant aspects to traditional Hinduism. It, because that's the way they look at things. That's the way they interpret life. Here's another religion. This is a, uh, a bigger one yet. 24% um, of the world's population is a part of Islam. It has its roots in Judaism. They see as their patriarch, and for a lot of you this won't come as by way of a surprise, but for others of you it might um, they see as their patriarch Abraham, which is also what the Jewish people see as a patriarch, and that's what the Christian people see as being a patriarch. But it's after Abraham that things kind of go a different direction. You'll remember that Abraham was given a promise that his descendants would outnumber the sand on the seashore, right? But him and Sarah, they grew impatient, and so they arranged this thing where Abraham would have a child through Hagar, and that child was named Ishmael. And then later, Abraham had a child through Sarah, in which the promise had been made, and, and that child was named Isaac. And for the Jewish people and for the Christian people, they look at Isaac as one of the patriarchs. It's Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob. But in Islam, they look at Ishmael as being um, like their patriarch following, following Abraham. Islam developed during the 7th century AD. It was founded on the teachings of the prophet Muhammad. The Quran is their Bible. It contains messages from God that were delivered to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. Their message or their religion revolves around their laws. It's all about the laws, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. And if you follow those well enough, and then, then you will be able to be rewarded with paradise when you die. If you don't follow them well enough, you won't be rewarded in that way. Um, in Islam, there are five pillars to their religion. One pillar is that they pray five times a day. Now, some, some have gone on some of these trips over to a man, Jordan, you know, to see the work of Harvey and Nancy Backus and, and now their son, James. And, and so if you've been over there, some of you have experienced this firsthand. Others of you maybe have been in the Middle East, you know, for other reasons. But, but if you have, you know about the call to prayer five times a day, starting early in the morning. In fact, after a long flight, it's what wakes you up that next morning. 
is the call to prayer. But th this is one of the pillars of their religion. Five calls to prayer every day. Another pillar is that uh, uh, you fast one month of the year. They call that Ramadan. Now, you don't fast for 24 hours. You fast during the daytime, during daylight. And then after the sun sets, then you're able to eat. But for an entire month, you cannot eat anything during the day. That's the second pillar. The third pillar is pilgrimage uh, to uh, Mecca. That this sometime during your life, this is something that you should engage in. Fourth pillar is giving 2.5% of your earnings to the poor, the needy. The fifth pillar is reciting the declaration of faith. And for them, the declaration of faith goes like this. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And that's something that you recite as you have opportunity to recite. But when it comes to Islam, there is no teaching or belief in a personal God. That's, that's not a component. There's, there's nothing in there about God's love. That's not a part of it. Salvation, you know, as far as Islam is concerned, salvation is something that must be earned. So it's how you perform. You know, how, how well you do in dotting the I's and crossing the T's as to whether or not you're actually going to be saved. Now, another thing that, that Islam is well known for is, involves the way that women are dressed. Women are regarded as possible temptations which could lead men away from the straight path. And so depending on which branch of Islam that you're a part of, women must be modest to the point of possibly even their entire body clothed, everything except for their eyes, you know, clothed, covered. Um, other ones might be slightly less than that. But that's where some of that comes into play. So that's Islam. Let me mention a fourth one, and in size, this isn't the fourth. Um, this isn't in the top five, uh, not, not, you know, by the time you had Christianity in there. Um, it's not in the top five. But I mentioned Mormonism because uh, for two reasons. It is a fast-growing religion, and it started here in America. It had its beginning in the early part of the 19th century. The founder of Mormonism is a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith. And part of uh, one of the distinctive things about Mormonism is that they, they do believe that the Bible is Scripture. However, they have other books of Scripture as well, three other ones. And the Bible's at the bottom of the list because this is the least reliable because it has been in the hands of Christians and Christian pastors for far too long. And so they believe you can't really trust what it says. It's been changed quite a bit. So, so some of their books of scripture that they hold of, of greater importance would be the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. They teach that Jesus came to the Americas after his resurrection you know, he wasn't just over there. He came here. There were a couple of nations of people that he came and, and he visited and he talked and shared the gospel with them. Now, when you're talking about Mormonism, um, I, I need to throw this out there that there's more than one branch of Mormonism. After Joseph Smith's death uh, that took place in Illinois, um, the church split, the largest segment by far, the largest segment of the church uh, followed Brigham Young. And they're the ones that ended up migrating west, went to Utah. And so when we talk about Mormons, that's typically the group that we're talking about, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The other branch um, next in size, there, there were even some others that broke off, but, but the next in size was quite a bit smaller, and it followed uh, Joseph Smith's wife, his first wife, and, and her son. And this became um, known as um, the reorganized church of Jesus Christ, 
of Latter-day Saints. In more recent years, they've changed their name, and now their name is the Community of Christ. That group is, is, is definitely more fundamental in their beliefs. They're not as far out there in their beliefs, you know, the Community of Christ group. But when you're talking about the Utah uh, side of all of this, uh, they've got some beliefs that, that um, if you've never studied it, you know, it'll surprise you. You know, one, one, of their, one of their beliefs is that there are multiple levels of salvation. And the highest level of salvation that you can potentially achieve is that you can become a god of your own planet one day if you're a man not if you're a woman so uh, you know if if you're a woman they don't say it this way but it's kind of like you gotta you know you gotta ride the coattails of a man um and and it involves a number of things it's not necessarily a given you know in mormonism that everyone is able to achieve this um, but there are certain temple ceremonies and temple marriage you got to go through along with a number of other things. Their belief is that the God of this world that we find ourselves living in at one previous point in time, he was a human being just like us. And this was what he was rewarded with, you know, as being the God of his own planet. And so there's some things there that, that uh, and that, that's just a little bit tip of the iceberg, you know, stuff in regards to Mormonism. Now, I share all of that to drive this home. You can't say that religions are all basically the same. You can't say that. And we've only talked about four today. But you, just based on that, you can't say that they're all basically the same slight variations of the truth you know, you can't draw that conclusion. One teaches that you can become a god yourself. Another one teaches that all of this doesn't really exist. It's just an illusion. Another one says that suffering actually is you paying for the evils of your previous life. Another one is saying that God is impersonal and you can't really know him in a personal way. The more you think about it, the more it just seems to be a confusing, cluttered mess. And like I said earlier, God is not the God of confusion. And, and don't forget, there, there are thousands of religions out there. So by the time you enter into all these others and their basic beliefs, yeah, Satan, the Bible describes him as being the great deceiver, the father of lies. He wants to muddy the waters as much as possible. And you've got to admit, he's done a pretty effective job of doing just that as far as the religious scene is concerned in the world. What I want to do in the last few minutes is I want to share with you something that, to one degree or another, we've touched on this you know, at previous points in time, but I want to remind you that Christianity is different. Christianity is different. And I want to touch on four specific ways that it is different from any and all of these other religions. What sets Christianity apart? First of all, regarding Christianity, it relies totally on the grace of God. This concept of grace. Other religions focus on what it is that you must do. But that's not Christianity. Christianity focuses on what has been done for you. That's where the spotlight is focused. One of the passages that does a good job of breaking that down for us is Ephesians chapter 2. It says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So being saved is not something that we can pat ourselves on the back over. It's not because we've achieved it. It's not because of our performance was good enough. That's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace. It's a gift that we receive from God. And on top of that, it's a free gift. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I didn't earn it. I didn't achieve it. I don't deserve it. But yet I stand before you today forgiven as a child of God with a home waiting for me in glory in heaven. How's that possible? It's not the result of having prayed five times a day on my knees. It's not the result of a two-year mission trip that I took. It's not the result of living some kind of a strict ascetic lifestyle. Instead, it is the result of a free gift that was given to me by God. A gift that I didn't purchase. It's one that he purchased and paid a very high price for it. This sets Christianity apart from all other religions. So I don't live my life trying to um, earn points with God, trying to find new ways of earning additional points with God. That's not the way that I live my life. Instead, I live my life looking for opportunities to express my gratitude to God for what he has done for me. And that's what any good that I can possibly do in my life, any service that I can be about, all of that is not to try in an attempt to earn my way there. No, all of that is just one more creative way of saying thank you for what you have done for me, God. You see, it totally relies upon the grace of God. It's not my performance. It's not your Performance. Another thing about Christianity that, that is set apart from other religions is it involves God reaching out to us. And you see this even, even way back in Genesis chapter 3, like in the third page of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned and all, God dropped the first hint, or as some call the messianic prophecy in Genesis 3 verse 15. And then there are many more found throughout the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, this is what the Bible is all about. It is a history of God doing just that, reaching out to us. God sending the prophets and calling for us to return to him. God giving the law through Moses in order to help open our eyes and our awareness of the fact that we can't achieve this on our own. We can't be good enough based on personal performance. We're totally reliant upon his grace. God accomplished this by actually going to the extent of entering into our, our world in the person of Jesus and what unfolded on the cross. John says it this way in 1 John Chapter 4, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. You see, it's always been about God taking the initiative. God has always been the one taking the initiative in this. God never turned his back on mankind and said, okay, enough of that. I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna create an entire different world and start over with a different created being and God has always been reaching out to us. Another thing about Christianity that sets it apart is that it focuses on a relationship. This is what God has been searching for, what God has been seeking with us is a relationship. Other, relationship, other religions are founded upon teachings and laws. But Christianity is based on a person. Other religions are preoccupied with rituals. But Christianity spotlights a relationship. You might be interested to know that in the Quran, there is not a single mention of Allah's love for the world. Not one place in the Quran does it say that. But there are many laws and there are many strict warnings and penalties associated with those laws. If you break these laws, what will happen? But the whole idea of having a relationship with Allah is a foreign concept 
as far as Islam is concerned, and as is the case in, in several of these other religions still. But yet in Christianity, it's the very foundation of it all. Ephesians chapter 1, I like the way Paul said it. He said, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. You see, God has been the one seeking the relationship all along. And then a fourth and final very significant difference is that Christianity is established by the resurrection of Jesus. You look at um, all these other different religions and you're going to come across various names like Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad and Joseph Smith and Charles Taz Russell and Mary Baker Eddy and, you know, numerous other ones. And the reality of the matter is when the time came that they died, their graves were occupied and their graves continue to be occupied to this day. Not so with what we have in Christianity. When Jesus died, yes, he died and he was buried, but he didn't remain buried. I like the way Peter was saying it in Acts chapter 2. Now, mind you, Peter was in Jerusalem when he said this. It's just 50 days after the reported resurrection of Jesus. Okay, which also, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus, all of that happened in Jerusalem or real close to Jerusalem. And so here it is 50 days later, and this is what Peter is saying. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So what Peter is doing is he's reminding them, you know, that Jesus did a lot of miracles and that was God's way of kind of stamp of approval on what Jesus was teaching and what he represented. But Jesus ended up dying. He was crucified. Look at the very next verse. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So here he is, 50 days after the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and Peter is saying that God raised him back to life again. There would have been people there in that crowd that would have been able to say, whoa, 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 back it up here a little bit. Guys, follow me. I want to show you the grave. They put his body where he's still buried at. But nobody could do that. Because by this point in time, it was well established, his grave was empty. And they had all heard the reports of the resurrection of Jesus. This is part of what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. Is that what, what, God, what God accomplished through Jesus, he sealed it with the resurrection of Jesus. And it causes this to stand apart. That's why people like Josh McDowell, you know, set about trying to disprove Christianity. And what he was trying to attack was the resurrection of Jesus. Thought if he could, and he correctly thought this, if he could disprove the resurrection of Jesus, all of Christianity will collapse. But Josh McDowell ends up, after he investigates it, he gives his life to Christ. Because he begins to see in a new way, a fresh way that the resurrection of Christ is a well-established fact. This is why I am not ashamed of the gospel. This, this, and this is what Paul was saying as he started this book of Romans. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. 
of everyone who believes. And then the rest of the book of Romans details it out, how it is possible for us to be saved from our sin, how it is possible for us to be forgiven. And it's all because of what happened with Jesus going to the cross on our behalf. I started the message off, or I started the message time off, by reminding all of us in here that this is Memorial Weekend. And so it's more than just a time for grilling, it's a time for remembering. But you know, and and that's totally valid and important that we grasp that. But you know, in a very real sense, every Sunday when we get together, isn't that what we do? When we remember the sacrifice that was made by our Lord Jesus, the death, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. During the time of communion, we take the bread and we eat it and we reflect on his body that was nailed to the cross. We take the cup and we drink it and we're reminded of the blood that was spilled on the cross. Why? What for? Why did all of that happen? It was to purchase our freedom, to set us free from sin. So in a very real sense, that's what we do every Sunday, right? Is we reflect on what it is our Lord has done for us because we don't want to ever take forgiveness for granted. We don't want to ever take the hope of heaven that lies before us for granted because as soon as we start doing that, guess who we're going to start patting on the back? We're going to start thinking, well, it must be because I'm such a stand-up guy. must be because I perform so well. It's not. The reason we have the hope of heaven is all because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And every week we're reminded of that. And so during this time, I'm going to lead us in a prayer, and I want to encourage you to prayerfully just spend some time reflecting while you take the bread and eat it in the cup and drink it and just remember the sacrifice that he made for you to make it possible for you to be freed from your sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to be able to to talk about a subject that is one we all need to be reminded of from time to time so as not to take for granted, you know, what it is that we hold so dear, the gospel and the price that was paid to make it possible for us to have this good news of the freedom that can be found in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, today as we As we take the bread and as we take the cup, we reflect, we remember, and we celebrate our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We celebrate your love for us and the fact that you made a way possible for us to have a relationship with you that will stretch into all of eternity. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.